I want you to know I honestly didn't plan this uh, in this way. But the Gospel of St. John in chapter 10 is all about our Lord Jesus Christ teaching that He is the Good Shepherd. Did you catch our last hymn today? Let me read to you three verses from it. The King of love my shepherd is, whose goodness faileth never. I nothing lack if I'm His, and He's mine forever. In death's dark veil I fear no ill. With Thee, dear Lord, beside me, Thy rod and staff comfort me, Thy cross before to guide me. And so through all the length of days, Thy goodness faileth never. Good Shepherd, may I sing Thy praise within Thy house forever. Beautiful. And I say it in plan, it is exactly what we're going to be talking about today, where our Lord Jesus Christ teaches of Himself, being the Good Shepherd. I gave you some scriptures. You'll see a few icons at the bottom. We'll get to those in a minute. But first, let's have a look at the beginning of the Gospel of St. John in chapter 10. I'll begin reading in verse 1. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of the stranger. There are two things that our Lord is doing in this first portion of the teaching about Himself as the shepherd. He's setting the scene by which you have two things happening. One, the sheep are all corralled, so to speak. The flock is all together in the gate, in the fence. And He's describing that scene where He's saying, I am the door. Anybody else that comes in any other way is not for you, is not for the sheep. It's come to do evil. And then he says, when I take them out of the fold, and when I take not out of the fold, out of the pen, <clears throat> out of the uh, fence, and I take them from pasture to pasture, I go before them. I lead them. And they follow me because they know my voice. And they will not follow a stranger's voice because they don't recognize it. They don't know it. This is intricately true. You ask any shepherd... And we'll get to this in a minute, but one of the most important things that a shepherd must do is get the sheep to trust his what? His voice. So that they know his presence by his physical look. But then they also know to respond to his voice, and not only to his voice, but to his voice only. Because all others they recognize as a stranger, they don't trust. You'll hear me talk about this in a minute. Sheep are incredibly skittish creatures. They are very, very fearful animals. And so when they trust a voice, they trust a voice. And any other voice, they'll run away from. Okay? So he's giving these two examples from actual shepherding. And when he talks about being the gate and the door... That the shepherd stands watch there, because what is he watching for? He's watching for poachers, number one. 
You see, a shepherd is hired by many to care for sheep. And there are others who find value in sheep and could make money off of them. They want to steal them away. You think they come through the gate most noticeable? What do thieves do? They go around the back. They go around the unseen. They try to sneak in and poach away. But the shepherd stands at the door guarding both inward and outward. And so he's trying to teach those listening to him that I am the shepherd. I am the only voice you need to follow because every other voice will lead you astray from this voice, from this presence. This is what he's getting after. And they... Predator animals, same thing. Now, a little bit less in the fenced area, because most of the fenced areas were around towns. Uh, they were in more, not that they're not in danger of predators, but we're going to see this when the shepherd leads them out from pasture to pasture. That's when they have to be ultimately on guard for the predators that would seek the, to, the, to eat the sheep, the death and devour the sheep. Okay? But what he's talking about here being in the pen, he's more talking about those who live in the shadows, the poachers trying to steal them away. In fact, my mind immediately when I was reading this gospel this week, <clears throat> I got mindful again of my past readings, and I've read it multiple times, and I'll read it again, I promise. But every time I read uh, C.S. Lewis, the screw tape letters, you want insights into how the poacher poaches? Read that book. The Holy Spirit gave that man insight into how Satan and the demonic seek to whisper in our ear and steal us away by hiding in the shadows, not coming in the up front. You know, never with that audacity. They steal in the shadows and they try to get us away in our thoughts and our actions and so on and so forth. It's also why St. Peter instructs us, and you've heard me say this many times, in one of his epistles he says, so be sober, be vigilant, because the enemy, the devil, walks about seeking whom he may devour. And Jesus is saying, anyone not coming through the door, don't trust it. Because I'm the door, I'm the shepherd, I am the entrance, I am the exit, and my sheep know my voice. Now there's something else that Jesus is doing in this particular uh, portion. And he, he is differentiating himself from Satan. He is differentiating himself from Satan in something very, very important. What is a thief and a robber? What's the goal of a thief and a robber? Don't talk about predators now. We know it's to devour. But the thief and the robber comes to do what? Steal, Steal what? <coughs> Sheep. And when they steal them, they scatter that sheep from the fold. Right? And one of the things that Jesus is pointing out, if you want, and, and in Holy Scripture, we are told to test the spirits. We are always told to discern the spirits. You want to know a telltale sign of what is of God versus what is of Satan? Is what's happening scattering or gathering? Is what's happening, is what you see before you in your own mind and heart, or what you see before you in the actions of others, are they producing a scattering of the flock or a gathering of the flock? No, no, I'm saying this is the discernment, right? So Satan, anything of Satan, seeks to, as Marilyn said, scatter apart. Anything that God does... He is a gatherer. He gathers His people to Himself. How many times in the Old Covenant do we see Him saying, I have gathered you to Myself. You will be My people and I will be your God. 
St. Paul likens it to a bunch of pieces of bread that have been made into one loaf by the Holy Spirit. Even in people's baptism, they are not baptized. They are not baptized to continue such an individualistic lifestyle. They are baptized as beloved of God, as individuals, but they are baptized into Christ and His body. So that even in the sacrament of baptism, you see God gathering His people, keeping His people together. Okay, let me ask you a question. Look at what well just I don't want to, I don't even want to preface it. How have you seen our enemy scatter people in the church? By what means? Any thoughts you have on how he goes about scattering people? Kim? Being here, activities, just things. Okay. Stealing us from Distractions? Yeah. Right, like you, I, I, boy, those activities, all these activities, you know, that, that are not just, I'm not just, we're not just talking about parenting. There's, there's so, we are inundated as parents more than ever these days on activities almost every day if you want to look at it. Okay? But also in this life, just distractions scatter. Okay? What else? <clears throat> Giving us doubts, trying to plant doubts in our minds so that we doubt if this is the place that we should be, or we doubt, you know, is this the truth? Our faith. We doubt our faith. Absolutely. Okay, so we can very quickly, you know, Paul says this in a scripture, pardon me, Paul says in a scripture that we are to take every thought captive. And this is the very same thing as discern the spirits. Okay? When Paul says we take every thought captive, that word thought that he's using is the birth of a thought. Because you and I know that something influences our thought, whether it comes up from within or something outside influences the beginning of a thought. And Paul is saying we take the beginning of that thought, and the way you take it captive, the fathers teach, is you take the beginning, the very pinprick birth of that thought, and you place it actively before Christ. And you say, what is this and what do I do with it? You fellowship with God over your thought life. What do I do with this? So you take a thought like that, doubt, and we can very quickly see. Wait a minute. Let's let's use let's use this image for a second. Is this is this trying to get me to separate from the others and from Him, our Shepherd, or is it calling me to gather and be one with? You see, you see how that point of discernment can work in the very birthplace of the thought, so that we take the thought captive, we present it to Christ, rather than because if we dance with that thought. If we let that thought continue, it's going to have us captive. There's only one, two, one captive. There's either blessed surrender to Christ or total captivity of thought. And, we, and off we go. Okay. All right, so faith. He uses doubt in faith to scatter. What else? Diane? I think sometimes we <clears throat> are distracted by the things that we do not calling our church people that we know are not here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Yeah. Because those people need to know that they're missed. Exactly. That somebody's missed. Absolutely. Because when when you call, you know, at least they know that they're missed. So and and if you turn that around, the body of Christ has a place in the gathering. To go out for those that have gone astray, so to speak. We haven't seen them in a while to reach out. Absolutely. And the lack of a call 
can also be a scattering. Very good. <clears throat> what about sin? Let me give you an example. This is, of course, an extreme one. But I have seen certain sins completely split congregations. <clears throat> one of the most horrendous ones that our Lord, that our, that our enemy uses, <clears throat> is adultery. I've seen the sin of adultery split parishes. Why? Think about it. The taking of sides starts to take place. Right? I've seen this happen many, many times over. So that's just an example of sin. But let me give you another example of sin. What about people like the man in 1 Corinthians, who, if you remember correctly, was sleeping with his father's wife? Yeah. Yeah, I saw some winces on that one. But it was happening. And he was unrepentant over it. He was determined to live that lifestyle. Though the church was calling him to repentance, Christ was calling him to repentance. And what does Paul say? Hand him over to Satan. Now I want you to understand the wisdom of the church in this. Who is it that's already handed themselves over to Satan? The person. The church is simply saying, as God would say, thy will be done. Just like the father of the prodigal son did. He didn't try to convince him to stay. His son was set against living in the order of his house, wanted to experience life in other countries, in other areas, and so on. And so he goes and spends his inheritance on everything, wasting it. But his father didn't. He let him go. In prayer that he might come back having been burned by the death that this world has to offer. Which is why Paul says, hand him over to Satan in hopes that he might be saved. Isn't that fine? Paul knows exactly what he's talking about. And sometimes they have to go and drink of the poison to come back to the great physician to have their poison healed. So, sins separate and drive sheep away. Our, that those, our will, when it gets bent, so to speak, to sin. So very good. And these are the things that Jesus is saying that I am the door. I am the doorkeeper. I am the shepherd who stands watch. Anybody else in anybody's voice scatters. I gather. Now speaking of gathering, you have two icons on the bottom of the page that I gave you, and they are very old. It would, you might find it interesting to know. Do you remember that under the Roman persecution of the church, which began in 64, AD, or AD 64 and would last till AD 313 under Constantine when he would make Christianity legal. But there was the persecution that occurred during that time begin, that was begun by Caesar Nero. It forced the Christian church to have their worship, their Eucharist in secret places. And one of those secret places they were forced to go to was the catacombs. Now, think of the brilliance of this. Catacombs under Rome. That would probably be one of the last places that the Romans would be checking for Christian worship to take place among the dead. And yet we know that this is exactly where the church worshipped during that time in Rome. And on the walls, if anybody ever takes a tour, is anybody ever in here, I'm curious, has anybody ever taken a tour of the Roman catacombs? And so you've seen the iconography on the walls. They had iconography on the walls as part of their worship. 
You want to know what the two most common, I mean, excuse me, the, the most common icon of all of them. Now you had your icons of Christ, you had icons of all of this and that, but they had more icons of Christ the Good Shepherd than any other icon. And he's dressed like a Roman. Yeah, and he's dressed up, well, yeah, exactly. But yeah, look at, yeah, if you look at that, those two are two of the different icons in the Roman catacombs of the Good Shepherd. They were placed there. They were there very particularly on a reason. Because what did the church believe? That when they gathered together, it was the gathering of the shepherd with his sheep. These are the ones who he had baptized into himself. These are the ones that by being together, he was going to lead from green pasture to green pasture, even in among the dead in the catacombs. That God would lead them. He would teach them His voice. He would feed them all they need for their life and salvation. And so the icon of the Good Shepherd, there are more icons of the Good Shepherd than any other icon in the catacombs in that early worship. Isn't that fascinating? So it tells us very much how they understood Christ and how they understood themselves. He is our shepherd. We are the sheep. We are here to fellowship. We are here to be led. Thank you very much. A modern, a modern day. Thank, thank you, Vanna White. That was one. That was perfect. That was perfect. Yeah, and I intentionally, I have one of those in my office as well. It's very important to me. That icon. Thank you. Yeah, it is too. That's correct. That's correct. And so they saw it as a gathering, a learning to hear the voice of, and the shepherd, they saw the shepherd in the Eucharist as he has come to feed us. He has come to feed us himself. He's come to gift us with everything that we need for this life and salvation, even as we are having to do this in the catacombs during persecution. And he's even giving us everything in the green pastures we need if we must be persecuted for his name's sake. This is how they understood life in Christ and the Eucharist. Regarding his uh, learning his voice, St. Gregory of Nazianzus, he taught this. These, the sheep, I call by name, and they follow me. For I herd them up beside the waters of rest. They follow every shepherd whose voice they love to hear. But they will not follow a stranger. Instead, they will flee from him because they have a habit of distinguishing the voice of their own from that of strangers. This is something that sheep intricately do. Intricately do. <clears throat> so let me ask you this. In the Eucharist, speaking of hearing his voice, in the liturgy, how in the liturgy do we learn to hear the voice of our shepherd? How do we learn? What happens in liturgy, even today, that helps us to learn the voice of our shepherd? One's the gospel. The gospel. The reading of the Holy Gospel. Let's throw into that the reading of the epistle. Right? The holy readings of Scripture. Again, I say to you, and I know that you are just as human as I am, 
and that in the liturgy sometimes the scriptures are read and sometimes we mentally check out. We don't listen as though Christ is teaching us. It's true, we're all guilty of that from time to time, but let us be encouraged to wake up to that. So that when the Holy Scripture is read, the epistle, even in Matins, the Old Old Testament readings, the Vespers, the the readings that occur, whenever Scripture is read in prayer services and liturgy alike, we, we listen. Why? Because what would a sheep do to a shepherd? They listen. Because he needs to tell them something for their direction. And not only that, the reading of Holy Scripture to us, as well as when we do it at home in our daily readings amongst the hours of prayer that we're to keep. When we hear Holy Scripture read to us, we begin to discern in the daily, okay, what voice is coming my way? Does this sound like what I keep hearing in the gathering? Does it sound like what I'm hearing when I'm in my prayer and fellowshipping with Christ through the, through the reading of Holy Scripture? Or is this another voice? Okay, so the reading of Holy Scripture, what else? The Psalms. The Psalms. Yeah. What else? Well, in our prayers, we're praying. We're praying. We're praying, we're fellowshipping, and every prayer we pray was given to us by who? We're learning the language of the kingdom of God. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, this is hurting me. I can't believe I can't believe y'all y'all did not the silence. Wait a minute, stop. Time out. Say that again. That silence. We are a culture is infinitely uncomfortable with what she just said. Silence. You know why we're uncomfortable? Because we never give ourselves any. We are bombarded with noise. You and I know it. We're bombarded with noise sometimes because of things around us, or we're bombarded with noise because we choose to not have silence. So we have become a culture of noise. Okay? And a lot of it white noise. You know what I mean by that? It's nothing. It's nothingness. It's just noise. Well, it might be words. It might be music. It might be news. But it's nothing. The discipline of silence. How does God speak to us so many times? We see both in the Old Testament and New Testament. Still small what? Yeah, you're going to hear it through all that stuff? With all the noise we let go on around us? The blessedness of silence. I've done something very intentionally. We used to fill our, um, and, and, and I, look, I love singing hymns of praise. And we used to fill the entire time, um, really up until about a year ago, we, we would have our whole time of Eucharist filled with hymns. And there's nothing innately wrong with that. <clears throat> but what I asked the choir director and the organist to begin doing is pull it back to half. I'd like a couple of times... But let's have some silence during Eucharist where we can commune with God without words going on. Where we can just be with our shepherd. Okay? And you'll notice it even greater 
since a couple years ago, we started being able, because of the strength of our choir, to take the organ totally away. That now, during Lent, when the organ is not even there, hardly anything is happening. And it's silence, and we need to be able to learn to relax into that silence and just be with God, and it'll be amazing what you might hear and experience in the silence. I know, nobody said the sermon, but yes, in the sermon. In the sermon. I'll deal with all of you later. But no, truly. Huh? You mentioned it. I already did? Maybe kind of. Maybe kind of? I'll give myself that one. No, here's the deal about sermons, and we really need to understand it. Just like with the divine readings, just like with the prayers... We trust, we trust that God in a sacramental way uses the words of instruction that come from the sermon based on the Mass, Holy Scripture, prayers, or whatever the sheep need to hear coming from the voice of the shepherd. And I say that with, uh, quite frankly, an incredible and profound sense of responsibility as does, I pray, everyone who preaches here, and I I know they do. They take it upon themselves to truly seek God because of that divine moment where God needs to speak, not a man, for the sake of the sheep, so the sermons. All Yes, Kathy? I have a question, Father. It just came to me while you were talking about that. You know, so many times when you walk out of church in the morning and you go past whoever gave the sermon, whether it was you or Peter or Deacon, uh, yeah. or Jim, and yeah. you know, it doesn't matter who it was. Sometimes you say to them, I used to say to Father Patrick all the time, you were talking straight to me. Yeah. So I wonder how many times you get that comment from people coming by in the mornings. Do you get it at all? Oh, sure. Oh, of course, of course. Because, you know, people, and people are experiencing the voice of the shepherd. Not this shepherd, the shepherd on those days. And so absolutely, and, and, and my response is always, thank God. Thank God. So whatever you're preaching, I think different people yeah. are going to pull out different things from it. Just like any of us. That's what our collective experience with Christ is all about. We gather together as a priesthood of all believers. But every one of us uniquely different in our struggles, in our need for mercy, in the reasons we need His mercy, our, our current needs, the struggles we have in our sin life. You know, you name any of it. All of us are uniquely different. So whether it's the... Look, there, Tom, I'm telling you, as, as a priest every time I do Mass, I get impacted by the fellowship of God, the experience of Him uniquely different at different times in the Mass simply because He's reaching out to me in that moment as His child. So it is with all of us. It's one of the things I love. You know, the damage that Rome did when they turned the priest to face the people in the Mass for the entirety of the Mass. The priest becomes what they call Christ in persona. The Orthodox and the early Western celebrations, I mean, that, that's, that, that was a Vatican II thing in the 1960s. Before that, even Rome was facing the same direction. Why? Because the priest is the lead worshiper. He's the one that's saying, come with me, let's go up the mountain together. 
and experience Christ. And yes, He's the one that makes the offering on behalf of us all. But it's our offering that He's making. You see? So it really it changed the spirituality of Rome when they made that move and their understanding of what this gathering all really is. So yes, Christ speaks to each one of us. Yes? One thing you have to mean, but the sheep are pretty stupid. Sheep are pretty stupid? Yeah. It's the it's truth. Gives me Give, hope. Gives us hope. Yeah. It really is true. Sheep are one of the, they know this, sheep are one of the dumbest animals that, that wander around. And this is what he calls us, hence our need for such a shepherd. All the time. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, very good. Let me read to you verse 14. I am the good shepherd, and and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I I lay down my life for the sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Every time you read the fathers on what it means to the fact fact that the sheep know his voice, they go right to this. What it means that the sheep know his voice is that they follow him, which means to know his voice is to obey his voice. There is an absolute obedience aspect, which quite frankly is our cooperation with the divine for our salvation. Because what is he leading us to? Our salvation. Therefore, every word that proceeds out of his mouth is for our life and salvation. Therefore, if we know the shepherd's voice, if we follow it, we are doing what? We are obeying what he shows us. And that is how we know we are in him. And he and us. Okay. And I wanted to note that from the fathers because I looked at so many of their teachings on this. Let's look as we start to close this down. We cannot get away from understanding the shepherd and the sheep and their relationship together without looking at the prophetic psalm that points to what Jesus is saying about himself. And we all know what that psalm is probably, right? Psalm 23. The 23rd Psalm is a prophecy, and I'm going to go one step further. It's not just a prophecy of, of what Jesus would become sheep, uh, shepherd for the sheep, but we would also prophesy what, how He would offer our life and eternity through the Eucharist, even in the 23rd Psalm. So let me read to you portions of the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want... He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. As we go through the psalm, before I even comment on that, I want you to think about why they had the good shepherd in the catacombs that was one of the most prominent icons. The Lord is my shepherd. That word Lord is the nameless name of God. Yahweh. The great I am is my shepherd, David is proclaiming. And because Yahweh is my good shepherd, I shall not want. There is not one thing that he will leave me lacking in so long as I what? Follow him. 
He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. A shepherd, a shepherd's role was to lead the sheep to the finest of pastures for their life and health. And so he would lead them and they would stay a while and they would eat and it would be good. When the pastures had been pretty much eaten away, he would then gather them to himself though he was watching over them the whole time, and he would lead them on a journey to the next green pasture. This was the role of a shepherd. It's the role our shepherd has for us. He he makes me lie down... I'm sorry, he leads me beside the still waters. Very important concept. We said that sheep are easily startled. They are skittish creatures. A shepherd intricately knows that he cannot lead sheep along a water source, whether it's a stream, a river, or whatever it is that's noisy. If it has little rapids in it, they will not approach the water to drink. What is it saying? He leads me beside still waters. The reason? He leads me in peace. He leads me to a place of peace. That if I remain in Him and I follow Him, and I obey this shepherd, he will get me to a place where I can lie and have no fear and drink what I need. God is a God who leads us to peace. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Then it gets to that interesting part that most people look at and say he's talking about death. He's actually not, even though it's still good to use for it. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You know what the, uh, the valley of the shadow of death was? This is actually the name that shepherds would give an area that they were going to have to pass the, lead the flock through that would be filled with opportunities for predators to hide. It could be in between two mountains where it's shadowy. There could be a lot of rock, a lot of hedges that he would have to lead them through. Who would hide behind a rock and a hedge in the shadows? The enemy that would seek to devour them, to steal a sheep away and devour it. The shepherds called that the valley of the shadow of death. Now listen to what he says. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I walk through the place where my enemy is actively seeking to devour me. Yea, though I walk through that, I will fear no evil, for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they bring me comfort. The rod and the staff, two different things. The rod was just a rod, okay? This would be used to beat away any that would come to take the life of the sheep. The staff had a crook at the end of it. This was, if a sheep stops following me for a moment and starts going away from the flock in the valley of the shadow of death, endangering its very life, I can take that staff, wrap it around the sheep, and bring it right back into the fold, herd it back in. Your rod that protects me, your loving rod that gathers me back to yourself when I go astray because of those two things. You can lead me wherever you want with thousands of my enemy around you and I will fear none of it. Because I follow my shepherd. I obey you. I trust you. I trust you. One early monastic taught in the mid-6th century said the shadow of death 
is filled with the devil and the demonic who set snares for us in the darkness that we may lose our way in the fog that he draws around us and fall headlong into eternal death. But this is not feared by one who is truly faithful and follows the good shepherd. In the last part of the psalm, and here's the part of the psalm that leaves no doubt that it prophesies the Eucharist and the one who would provide it for us. You prepare a table, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely, Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Listen to the sacramental language in the prophetic song that would speak to the catacomb gathering and why they would have the good shepherd icon more than any other icon. You prepare a table before me. The oil on my head. The cup that overflows with your mercy and goodness that follows me all the days of my life. I want, have you ever thought about this? Whenever you wake up on Sunday morning and you do whatever you're doing to prepare to get ready for church, I pray a little bit of prayer as part of that. That when you come, do you ever see Eucharist as Christ the Good Shepherd unfolding a table for you in the midst of this world? That whenever we are even away for a little bit, from this place, from one another, seeks to attack us. We live in the valley of the shadow of death every day, my friends. And what does Jesus do? He prepares a table for us in the midst of our enemies. Our cup overflows. Mercy and goodness that flow from that table will follow us all the days of our lives. Have you ever thought of yourself coming to that table when you come to receive Christ? When you come to gather as sheep together with the great, the good shepherd. Have you ever seen it like that? We should. The early church did. And that again is why they had the icon of the good shepherd was, was the most prominent icon in the catacombs. And think of their enemies. They were under persecution. Physical. As well as all of the spiritual that you and I have to deal with. Questions or comments? Well, I pray we'll see ourselves as His church, as the sheep that we are, who He has gathered together. He has gathered together. And He keeps us, and He watches over us. <clears throat> You've heard me say many times already, and I, and I don't apologize for saying it again. The greatest struggle of the Christian ought not be against Satan and the demonic. The greatest struggle for the Christian would be to remain with their shepherd. Why? Because when he leads us through the valley of the shadow of death, it's the good shepherd that takes care of the demonic. And takes care of the demons. And takes care of the illness of your soul. And offers you mercy like we talked about today. So that you can be filled with joy, eat in green pastures, and have the peaceful waters that are calm. To live through this life and be with him forever. Let's stand.